What's going on everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Dad's Game Podcast. This is Joan here as always, and today we got a special episode. We're going to be talking about the brand new expansion, Call of the Mountain, the new region which should be coming out along with it, Targon. We can do some theory crafting about some decks, some concepts that I thought about. The first thing that clicked in my mind when I first heard about the new cards that were going to be released. I've already identified certain cards that seem particularly overpowered, maybe just too strong. I'll share with you guys more about it later. I've been looking at Twitter, the League of the Legends of Runeterra subreddit. Why do I call it League of Legends? Just stick off the tongue. But you get what I mean. Both games are very similar. In fact, most of the regions, most of the cards come from League of Legends itself. So no surprises there. So, so, so sorry if I slip it up and you guys think I'm going to talk about League of Legends. No, no, no. As far as I'm concerned, this is a Legends of Runeterra podcast. So everything you want to know about the game, you can come to here and we'll talk about it. And I'll share with you guys my thoughts. And also I'll be talking about the Duos of Runeterra Southeast Asia Tournament, the 15th edition in which I participated and I finished at a third, fourth placing, which was better than I expected. I'll share more with you guys about my experience in the tournament later on. So when it comes to Call of the Mountain, everyone is very stoked. There are so many new mechanics that's going to be released. There's going to be stuff like Spell Shield, Behold, Nightfall, Daybreak, Invoke, and most recently, Fury. By the time this podcast episode is out, it's probably the brand new ladder season. Ladder will reset. Everyone will be back to their original ranks at the start of the season. If you're a master player, you'll be going back to platinum. So and so on and so forth. Maybe I'll put a timer on myself and challenge myself to reach master as soon as possible. Looks like this week, it might be possible. But there are a couple of tournaments that I see some Southeast Asia players, they're really starting to organize it. It's, I would say this tournament is particularly important as you more or less set a tempo for the landscape of Legends of Runeterra, especially with a brand new brand new patch, brand new expansion, brand new ladder season. Everything is going to shape up and there will definitely be lots of new, exciting and some would say predictable strategies that will come out. We all know in my previous two podcasts, I always talk about how certain decks always revolve around the same four pillars. You're either playing aggro, you're either playing mid-range, you're playing combo, and you're even playing control. Most of the decks that you create tend to fall within these four categories. I don't think that there's any other deck which functions like Exodia. But Exodia is some form of a combo deck. If you guys are unsure what Exodia is, maybe you didn't play Yu-Gi-Oh before. It is a deck which requires you to draw one copy. Okay, so basically there are five cards in the deck. All you have to do is draw one copy of each of that card. And with the band list in Yu-Gi-Oh, you're only allowed to play one copy of each. So the whole deck concept is to run tons of draw to draw into those five cards to win the game. The moment you have those five cards, there's no way your opponent can stop you or anything. Because it is the game rule which states that when you have all five cards in your hand, you win again automatically. There is no way you can negate the effect like having a deny to stop his win condition. So that's how the deck functions. And I highly doubt that Legends of Terror will come out something like that in the, new fu- in the near future where you have to have five cards in your deck that you draw them. If you have all five, you automatically win. The only card which comes close to that is none other than Fiora, which is an alternate win condition card. Instead of depleting your opponent's nexus to zero life or even making your opponent deck out through Maokai, 
In fact, Maokai is another form of win condition. So for Fiora, all you gotta do is destroy monsters or destroy units four in a row, along with uh, Fiora on the board, and you win the game. Same as for Maokai, you can mill your opponent down to four cards. Maybe he plays some shenanigans and he's able to shuffle back some champion cards back to the top of his deck. If your opponent's able to do that, it means that he more or less knows that that's how you play against Maokai. In fact, during the Duos of Runeterra tournament, I faced against one of the modern. I managed to resolve my Maokai milling his entire deck. However, he had Ash and Sudrani on board. And he was able to shuffle back copies of Fury of the North and his Ash back into the deck. Not Fury of the North, he's able to shuffle back another copy of Sudrani. There was also an instance where he hanged down to Everosan Trapper in his hand, especially after I dropped Maokai. And he shuffled back and enraged Yeti back into it. This is the first time in which I've seen such a thing happen. And I can't remember what's the name of my opponent, but when he did those, those plays at me, I was kind of impressed. As I didn't know that much people know how to counter or how to play against sea monsters at a high level. Because most people most likely tap out when they see Maokai on the board. So when we look at the decks that will be created, I did mention that it will be somewhat predictable. Most of the decks, people sort of expect it to either be aggro or mid-range, especially in the new meta. People want to win games as soon as possible. They want to reach master rank, especially for those who are, who've already reached master rank before. They'll try to challenge themselves. Then itself, maybe I'll give myself three days from the ladder reset to hit masters again. And so the very first decks that they'll probably form is some form of aggro. And when we look at the brand new patch, there are certain cards which fit that criteria. Some cards fall in the category of Nightfall. We see the Shadow Owls along with Nocturne, which is a brand new champion. Nocturne heavily relies on the Nightfall mechanic and the ability to swarm the board and have other Nightfall units on the board to make your opponent have lesser attack. Because there's some effect of Nocturne which allows it to reduce the opponent's attack by one. It's something like a Frenzied Skitterer. And here's the best part, Frenzied Skitterer isn't played often anymore due to spiders totally falling off the meta. But with Nocturne and the ability of Nightfall to buff or to reduce your opponent's attack, along with the fact that Nocturne comes with Fearsome. And I do know that some of the Nightfall cards have Fearsome as well. It is a very fast-paced aggro deck, which I would see a lot of people form during the first few weeks. And I'll get into more detail about it later. So right now, let's talk about my experience playing Dose of Rintera 15, where I placed 3rd, 4th. Here's the funny thing about Dose of Rintera 15. I originally didn't want to participate in it as I didn't really prepare much. In fact, I didn't play much of Legends of Rintera ever since I hit top 150 masters. If I'm not wrong, I've been bumped out of it. I didn't play much of rank. I've been primarily focusing on playing the labs and creating content regarding the labs, which I found it. To be one of the best things that ever happened in my previous one of my previous episodes where I talked about Spirit Blossom and how it became a success. It was mostly based on me playing tons of lab and overall enjoying the entire Spirit Blossom event. If I managed to unlock at least three quarters of all the rewards, I would have been able to unlock all of it if I played every day. But I'm now falling back into the habit of accumulating three quests and then playing maybe once every three days. As right now there's not much of an incentive to hit rank 1 master all the time. Originally, maybe like the last season and the previous one, during beta and season 1, I was diligently grinding the master rank. I, I did peak at rank 5 and rank 7 respectively, but then there are players who are more gung-ho than me, they are able to consistently play games and 
I got overtaken eventually. For the beta season, I did end it at rank 25. As for last season, I think I pro- approximately rank 170. But the thing about maintaining a high rank in Master Ladder is extremely hard, especially for those of you who are listening and you have tried it before. Before the rank season change, you could wake up and grind all the way to rank 5, and the next day, maybe a couple of players, they played maybe 18 hours a day. Actually, I'm not that ridiculous. Some I play around 13 hours, and the next moment when you log in, you see you've been dropped to rank 20, 27. And especially at a higher rank, or a lower rank or master rank, it's very hard to rank up, and one loss can easily throw you back all the way to rank 100. So I would say the new changes to the rank really help out those players who are diligently playing rank the master ladder all the time. As all you gotta do is consistently win and you'll be adding LP. And the player who is essentially rank 1 is the ones with the most LP, which means that he wins most of the time. And this is a very realistic approach. Or even the best way to implement a rank ladder system instead of one which goes down, you should have one which goes up. It means that when you win, you're given a certain amount of points and the rank is determined by the number of points that you have. And kudos to Riot for that. I think that's a step in a good direction when it comes to making the master rank experience more fun. But in the future, I would definitely see the the Legends of Rondera team, or even Riot, they'll be implementing some form of incentives for players who hit master rank. Because if one were to keep hitting master rank without the game implementing or rewarding the player in some way, there's really not much of any need to hit master rank all the time. But of course, there are competitive players and streamers who their brand revolves around hitting master rank. So there is no doubt something that they have to achieve every season. And most probably, they are paid to do it as most of the people are donating to them. And they are being like corny and funny at the same time. So people are tuning in to watch what they are doing. I'm not, try- I'm not trying to say like they have a fake personality or something. But it's all about business, right? When it comes to Twitch. Live streaming, creating content. It's all part of a big game. It's a big business. So let's talk about the tournament that I played over the weekend. I didn't prepare much. So I saw a broad decks that I felt really were in tune with the things that I had in mind or the overall strategy I wanted to play. In my mind, I knew that Ezreal Twister Fate would be heavily represented in the tournament along with Ash Sojourney. Like I mentioned multiple times, when it comes to Ash Sojourney, the better player usually wins especially when it comes to a mirror match. However, during the Swiss bracket, there'll be a chance for you to ban a certain deck of opponent. The Swiss format is a best of three, with both players bringing three decks, and both sides allowed to ban one. So the strategy that I employed when I walked into the tournament, or when I locked into the tournament, not walked into, I'm so used to walking into tournaments because in the past, when it was Yu-Gi-Oh! and Hearthstone, we had to play on offline, offline land tournaments, where we had to walk into the venue. But right now, all you gotta do is log in and go to, what's the thing called? Smash.gg Smash.gg, register and you're good to go. Go on the Discord server, report anything that you experience through a tournament and you're good to go and you can play out there all, all your games from the comfort of your own home on your... What chair am I sitting? This looks like a gaming chair. Pretty comfy though. In the past, we had to sit on those plastic chairs at tournament venues and there was no aircon at all though. Air conditioning for you American and European players. We call it aircon in Southeast Asia or in Singapore. Or you guys are more used to it, you guys call it the AC. Yeah, so for this tournament, I was expecting tons of Ash Sojourney players and Ezreal Twister Fate. So I brought along Ash Sojourney, obviously, Ezreal Kama, and Deep. The 
the reasoning behind bringing deep instead of bringing the the master heroine which a lot of players brought along in the tournament was because I really like the whole concept of deep. All you had to do was play a very simple strategy of keeping your life total above 10, ensuring that you're able to just have a couple of tossing cards. Jettison, Dead Bloom Wanderer, Tawny Toad, and Drag Dredges. These cards really, especially in the mid-range meta, where you know that most of the strategies that your opponent employ, they're most likely playing one creature per turn, hoping to have a good trade, try to chip in, do as much damage as possible every turn, and hopefully close out the game. So when we see cards like they run, especially like Sitia, in Esodrani they run Ash, they have Sodrani, they have Erosan Hearthguard. You more or less can predict what they're going to play every turn. And in the case of facing Ash Sodrani, you know that the only removal they run is possibly Sodrani, and it only comes in turn 6. And maybe Culling Strike. Most of the time, your opponents won't be mulliganing hard for Culling Strike. They'll try to establish a board, especially when they are mid-range deck, because... The whole strategy revolves around having a menacing presence on board and hopefully closing out the game from there. And when they're playing against deep, there's one thing that they do have to take note. It is that they have they are sort of on the clock because the moment Nautilus is dropped, they have to at least commit two cards to ensure that Nautilus can be destroyed. And those two cards is some form of Frostbite and the other is Culling Strike. And when we look at the Frostbites that they play, they don't run the actual Frostbite itself unless they have Ash on board. She means that they're able to cast the 3 mana. Is it Flash Freeze? Yeah, it's Flash Freeze. Brittle Steel obviously won't work because Nautilus will never ever reach 3 life and less because it comes with... Is it armor? Or is it the, the, the mechanic which allows you to take 1 damage less? And then when we look at the other form of Frostbite that they have, it is Harsh Winds and Sojourney like I mentioned. Both cost 6 mana. Which means that they need at least 9 mana to be able to deal with Nautilus on the board. And when we look at Nautilus on the board, all your other sea monsters really have the plus 3 plus 3 buff, meaning that your Devourer Depths will almost always guarantee to to obliterate their Sojourney, unless it is buffed by Omen Hawk, or they have an Elixir of Iron. And when they do that, you can sort of pew, because it's not much of a threat anyway, because Nautilus on board is able to smack them, or to, to just go face damage, along with Devourer Depths. If they were to cast Elixir of Iron, it means that the other cards in the hand are not as useful compared to it. Because when we look at Esodrani, they, they are heavily reliant on establishing a board and then dropping Trifarian Assessor to join the more cards. So when you look at Esodrani, you more or less can predict what type of cards are going to be in the deck. They don't have any outright form of removal other than the Reckoning and a combination of Frostbites. And even so, their Frostbites are very limited. They run double copy of Brittle Steel and double copy of Harsh Winds. When you play against deep, those cards are not enough to win you the game. And the only way you can do it is to employ the standard mirroring strategy of establishing the board and then winning the game. And that explains me taking in one copy of the Ruination. I don't run two copies like most people do. Some don't even run it at all. My reasoning of running Ruination, especially in the mid-range meta where you hardly see any Ionia. To me, I always keep Ruination in my opening hand, despite of it being 9 mana. Sometimes on turn 5, turn 6. You can maybe play a tossing card such as Jettison or Salvage and then set yourself up with more mana so that you're able to have mana for the Ruination. Some people might say that an open Ruination play might look pretty... not very valuable. But in Sea Monsters and also in Ezreal Karma, one turn where you delay your opponent from having an open attack 
it's one turn closer for you to win the game. It is one turn closer that you are able to draw another jettison, or one turn closer that you can reach deep. So the reasoning behind Ruination is as such. I run one copy because if I were to open it in my opening hand, I wouldn't mulligan it away. I'll keep it in it, especially if I'm facing a mid-range deck like Esudrani, which has no form of deny to stop it. Even the Master Harrowing. I have no trouble handling against the Master playing as monsters. In fact, when they run the Harrowing, you're not really that afraid of it because you devour the depths, which means that you're almost always guaranteed to clear their minions or their, even the champions all the time. The only way they can deal with it is perhaps a duel and concerted strike. And when they play a duel or concerted strike, it's more or less telegraphing to you that their hand isn't really that optimal. As when you put yourself in the shoes of a player playing the Master Harrowing, you want to mulligan hard for all the creatures. You're not so worried about your opponent dropping Maokai or even any form of sea monsters, as your strategy is pretty much the same as Esujani, which is establishing the board and ensuring that you can close out the game. If your opponent were to remove your minions, you can easily cast the harrowing or maybe turn 6 or turn 7 to summon everything out again and go for the win. So as you can see, the reason why I brought deep was because I knew what my opponent was going to bring. All I got to do is employ the same strategy, store out the game, keep a good life total, and maybe have one ruination to handle the overwhelming pressure. Let's say my opponent were to curve in perfectly as, as Sudrani, I would have answered to him if he had a board of Sudrani, Ash, and Everson Hufgard. Maybe along with some Omen help. And then I will have the Ruination as an answer to my opponent if they were to drop the Harrowing or sometimes. Because the moment I drop the Ruination on the, in response to the Harrowing, it means that I'll be able to buy one turn. And they most likely don't have any other follow-up play. As the deck isn't a combo deck, which has a lot of tricks up its sleeve. It's a mid-range deck, which runs the Harrowing as sort of a last resort to win the game. So the other decks that I brought were Esodrani, because it is pretty standard. Here's a fun fact about Esodrani. In my very first tournament which I played, around April during the beta season, was it March? It was one of the Singapore Duos, not Duos of Runeterra, it's one of the Singapore Weekly Cups in which the admins of the Southeast Asia or the Singapore Legends of Runeterra Discord server, they usually host a tournament every week for us Singaporean players to participate. The player pool wasn't huge, but it was sort of a platform in which players could test out their strategies and perhaps try out competitive experience for once, especially for those who don't come from a hearthstone or artifact. And what's the other card game, Gwen? Yeah, if they don't come from no background and they want to go pro, maybe participating in those weekly cups held by the Singaporean Discord server was a good step for those who want to go pro. So the very first tournament I participated was around 3 weeks after I started playing Legends of Runeterra. I brought along Esujani, and that was a meta in which it heavily revolved around Ezreal Karma. For now, it was War Mother Control, or was it? Oh, it was Dehu Endure. They were playing Dehu Endure along with Miss Wraith, some form of Ezreal Karma, which not a lot of people play, but it was heavily leaning towards Tons of Demacia, as Demacia at that point of time was the most represented deck. I did mention that multiple times, because ever since Ephemeral Midrange got hit, the elusive minion deck got hit. The one with Hecarim and Zed. The Masa became the the king of decks, especially after the Legends of Runeterra Korean Invitationals, where we see the Masa being represented heavily in it. So to me, when I saw or when I was preparing for the tournament, I was sort of thinking about potential counters. 
I was very comfortable with playing Ezreal Kama at the time. In fact, I always believed that a good Ezreal Kama player will always find a way to win the game, no matter how bad the game is. Because the thing about playing Ezreal Kama is that you don't really win the game the same way all the time. No doubt people think about Ezreal Kama. The first thing that comes to their mind is Ezreal popping off, you chaining all your mushroom clouds, your mystic shots. Or maybe you are like like Yugi from Yu-Gi-Oh, you cast 5 mushroom clouds and your Kama were to copy every single one of them and that means 20 damage on the spot and your opponent cannot react to it at all. Let me tell you guys something that actually happens. The chances of you having 5 mushroom clouds in hand, a Kama and an Ezreal together, it is near impossible and it will probably never happen in the history of Legends of Runeterra. If you were to play Kama and your opponent were to not react to it, you really won the game 99% of the time. And if you were to follow up with Ezreal, and they still have nothing in response to the Ezreal, leveled up Ezreal, along with a leveled up Kama on board, they are most likely asking for it. So that's my very honest truth. Because never in my life as playing as Ezreal Kama, I ever, never, ever have anyone not have anything in response to having those two cards on board. The very likely response they'll do is the Ruination, or they might cast Vengeance on one of the cards. You most likely have a deny to counter that, because in the past, 5 plus 3 plus 4 is 12 mana. And on turn 10, if you have 30 mana spare, it's more than enough to signal bye-bye to your opponent. And deny is double with Karma on board, which means that your Ezreal will proc twice, and that's 4 damage easily. And we all know Vengeance costs 7 mana, the Ruination costs 9. Most likely after they cast either of those spells, they're out of it. They pass, it goes to your turn, and that's game from there. So sometimes when you have Ezreal and Kama on the board, and you think of 5 Mushroom Clouds, that scenario is highly unlikely to happen. As nobody keeps... Uh, what's that card called? The 4 mana 4 tree. The Shroom thingy responds to Mushroom Clouds. No one keeps that in the opening hand. Maybe in the past when it was a 4 mana 4 4. But very likely when you're playing in an Ezreal Kama player, he'll most likely not keep it unless he's facing a mid-range matchup. But even so, they were one eye of the dragon most of the time. So I've been I've been moving away from the Ezreal Johnny topic. I've been talking too much about Ezreal Kama, which I'll get back into a bit later. Let's talk about Ezreal Johnny and why I brought it. Ezreal Johnny felt like a very good answer to the master at the time during that tournament. I knew a lot of players were going to bring the master or some form of the master and some spooky Kama players, which meant that most of their minions have very low attack, meaning that Brittle Steel is more or less guaranteed to make it have zero attack. And when Ash is leveled up, it means that they are unable to block. So I brought Ash to join the tournament, and I had fairly good success. It was only during one round where I sort of underestimated my opponent. I lost one round, and that was a very crucial round, because if I won that one, I would be at 4-1. And during that tournament, there was no top 8 playoffs or stuff, which means that if you had a high ladder or a high placing during the tournament, you're going to fall into the top 4 bracket, and you get prize money. So it was a slight plunder on my part. But from the tournament alone, I knew that Esodrani was a deck that could handle almost everything. However, on the ladder, you couldn't sort of expect to face the Masia all the time. Because apart from the Masia, Esodrani, or the very first version, just the Ash deck, had a very bad experience against Ezreal Kama. The deck sort of, it wasn't as explosive as Esodrani is today. Because Everson Trapper wasn't always a 3-3, it was a 2-2 if I'm not wrong. And then there was no Sodrani. The only reason why Sodrani is incredibly strong right now is because Heimervai got hit. The strongest deck to ever exist in Legends of Terra got hit. 
which meant that every strategy or every deck which was oppressed by Heimervai is suddenly relevant again. And that suddenly saw a rise in Ezreal Twister Fate and Esodrani. So when Esodrani came back into the scene, it sort of became an auto-include in a competitive scene. In fact, I would say that Esodrani is the best deck when it comes to competitive play as for Rising Tides. Because when we look at Esodrani, it packs everything that a mid-range deck should have. He has good early game through Omen Hawk. It's a decent 2-drop in the form of Everosyn Sentry. He has the ability to generate a 1-mana 5-5 through Everosyn Trapper. Every single turn and every single card that you drop every turn, it sort of plays out itself. Because when we look at Demacia, they are sort of independently strong, which means that most of their minions can be played on their own. But when we look, when we, when we look at Esodrani, no doubt their creatures are slightly weaker when it comes to their Demacia counterparts per turn. Those cards sort of synergize together because there's one card known as Everson Hearthguard, which has the ability to buff everything plus one plus one. And then we need to follow up with Triframer Assessor, which means that Assessor when buffed becomes a 5 attack, and everything else in your deck is probably going to be buffed to 3 or 4 or even 5, which means that you're more or less going to always draw 3 cards when Assessor is on board. And when we look at every other mid-range deck, I even include Azure Twister Fate, which is a mid-range deck, it doesn't really have tons of draws, unless you count Salvage and Static Shift, but those two cards cost 4, and they don't have a solid presence on board. So when it comes to Esodrani, it packs draw, it packs early game, mid game, and even late game where people include Captain Foron, which is something which I did as well, because I was not a big fan of having Kato Diam, especially in a meta dominated by Esodrani. When it comes to the mirror match, having the ability to have Captain Foron means that all you gotta do is just put in 8 damage to your opponent, somehow have an even bot state, which turn 8, drop Captain Foron. You're essentially putting your opponent on a 2 turn clock. Because all you gotta do is commit, decimate, and you're gonna win the game. So that was a deck which was auto-included for me. There was no reason not to play it. Unless I was gonna run Swain, Swain Twister Fate, which is the noxious Bridgewater version, which I'm not a fan with. So when we get back to Deep, because when I was running Deep, there was not much of a counter. The only known counter to me was View of Ionia. And knowing that not a lot of players will be running that, I brought it in with no hesitance. I forgot to mention that. Let me just add it in. Yeah. And then the final deck that I brought was Ezreal Karma. A lot of people were a bit questioned about it. They were thinking that Ezreal Twister Fate was a better answer. That's very true. What you say is very true. Because when I was playing Ezreal Karma, I was extremely shocked that whenever I were to face off against Ezreal Twister Fate, I'll get like dumpstered and destroyed. I totally understood the strength of Ezreal Twister Fate from those few matchups. But we all don't know about the best of 3 format, which means that if you win one game with the deck, you're not allowed to play it for the rest of the entire match. So for me, I was no way... Ever since the first round, I won my first round by the way, when I played against Ezreal Twister Fate as Ezreal Karma, my opponent banned Esodrani, which was something very predictable. Nobody wanted to play against Esodrani in a tournament. All I gotta do was jibate my opponent into playing Ezreal Twister Fate as an opening deck. So I ran Ezreal Karma. I sort of wanted to see how my opponent would play his Ezreal Twister Fate. So I just let the game go, he established the board. I sort of understood the position that I was in. And it was during the first round of the tournament where I actually acclimatized and got conditioned to the Ezreal Twister Fate playstyle. I immediately wrote in my head, okay, if I were to face against an opponent which brought Ezreal Twister Fate, I had to mentally prep myself that I'll probably lose the first game. Because there's no way he's going to ban Ezreal Karma when he's running Ezreal Twister Fate. It's an easy free win for him. 
And knowing my opponent would think that, I just resigned to it and say, okay, I'm probably going to face tons of Azure Twister Fate throughout the entire, entire tournament. And I'm not going to ban it. I'm just going to give him the first win if he happens to have Azure Twister Fate. And that happened twice in this tournament, if I'm not wrong. A lot of players brought Azure Twister Fate, but to my luck, none of them. I faced only two out of the seven rounds. And so I employed the same strategy. If they were to play Azure Twister Fate, I'll just let them have the first win. And then I'll follow it up with Deep. Deep always beats everything. Especially when we all know that when it comes to Azure Twister Fate, their biggest weakness is Deep. Somehow, because Riptide Rex cannot hit into Deep's monster which has extremely high stat lines, especially in Nautilus, which has the armor mechanic, which allows you to take only one damage each time Redirects his prop. And one big reason why Azure Twister Fate is terrible against Azure Twister Fate, I mean Azure Karma is terrible against Azure Twister Fate, is because of Redirects. No matter how strong your Karma, no matter how strong Azure is, all they gotta do is do warning shot along with Redirects, and they can clear both at the same time. Most likely, you only have one on board, because... The Azure Twister Fate has the ability to always put you, always make you feel at risk because they have the ability to establish the bot along with deal direct nexus damage through their spells. So you always feel that you're always under pressure. And if I didn't manage to acclimatize to what my opponent was playing, I probably gonna, I was probably not going to advance in the tournament. But thankfully I did. I saw the power of Azure Twister Fate against Azure Karma. I sort of changed my strategy a bit and allowed Azure Twister Fate to always take the game one against me. So throughout the tournament, I really enjoyed it. It was two days. It was split among five days. No, five rounds of Swiss during day one. And then day two was two rounds of Swiss followed by a top 16 cutoff. There were some decks which really surprised me. One of the decks which my opponent played was some barrier deck. It was Fiora Ishan. The player eventually won the entire tournament. Yeah, if I'm not wrong, yeah, that was the round I lost. It was during the top four games. Was I prepared for the deck? I did face a couple of barrier decks on the ladder in the past. It didn't really show or didn't really impress me as it was heavily reliant on having so many cards on board. Because if you notice about what makes a deck good, a good deck is something that don't really rely on each other. It's just a bunch of good cards that somehow work. When you look at the Masa, that's the same analogy, right? It's just a bunch of good the Masa cards that somehow work together. And then when we look at as Sojourney, it's sort of the same thing. Mid-range decks usually consist of a bunch of good cards that somehow work together. So you sort of get what I mean. The same can be said for Ezreal Karma. You just play a bunch of cards that synergize together. And then you drop Ezreal, you play a bunch of cheap spells, and you win the game. So when it comes to the barrier deck, it didn't really have much of an impression on me. But no doubt, kudos to my opponent. I think his name is Adele. He won the entire thing. I would say he played really well. Because during the top 4 match, I was leading 2-0. Then he did a reverse sweep on me. At that point, I was sort of relieved that my tournament round was over because I was extremely tired from playing non-stop two days of Legends Runeterra. It's not an excuse, but the better man eventually won, so congrats to him once again. I was also happy that the tournament had sufficient breaks in between. There was enough time for me to go to the restroom and to even do some stretches on the floor. Sometimes the games can drag extremely long, but so far my experience was great. And this tournament is also very significant to everyone who is a keen participant in a competitive scene, especially when it comes to Legends of Runeterra, because this is the last tournament of Rising Tides before Call of the Mountain, which means that whichever decks dominated this tournament is most likely the deck which will go down in the history books 
as the ones that define the entire rising tides before its closure. So right now, let's talk about Call of the Mountain. I'm very excited to talk about Targon, the brand new region, and I'm sure most of you are as well. So when it comes to Targon, there are four different types of people. There are the ones who are on the camp of the support playstyle. There are some who are very interested in Daybreak. The third one is not other than Nightfall, which I believe is the strongest mechanic coming out of Targon for this expansion. And lastly, the hype train for it will never stop. In fact, there are people theory crafting some on the bandwagon saying that it might be game-breaking, meta-defining. There are some players who are more pragmatic, more realistic, and they say that Celestials aren't that great anyway. The invoke mechanic ain't that good after all. So when we look at the cards that were released in Targon, the very first cards that were released were in tune with Tariq, which is the brand new champion. We all know what Tariq does. The first thing that comes to mind is it is incredibly good when it's packed together with Fiora. Apart from that, Tariq just doesn't seem to be that strong anyway. The very first impression that I had of Targon was it was meant to be a support region. Nothing more than that. It cannot be played on its own. It just seems that it's going to be a very sort of mid-rangey kind of playstyle as we see the cards. The very first few cards that were released with Tariq together. There were some cards like Bastion, which is a pretty good mechanic. The spell shoe one is pretty solid. And then there were Arbiter of the Peak, Mountain Sojourners. You get what I mean? Most of the cards, they were only useful during the combat phase. And when we look at meta-defining decks, especially in the meta right now, or the meta that it was before Call of the Mountain was released, it switched back to a more mid-range meta. Ever since Heimervai got dismantled, destroyed, and the face of Heimer got changed forever, it reverted back to a more mid-range oriented playstyle, which I believe is the best state that a card game should be. Nobody, re nobody really likes long drawn out games like those control games. Nobody likes playing Solitaire. For example, Ezreal Kama mirror matches all the time and Heimer Vi mirror matches where all it takes is your opponent to have an additional Heimer or double copies of Kama in your hand to win the game. So with the Call of the Mountain expansion and the very, few, very first few cards released in Targon, it sort of gave me the vibes that it's going to be more of a supportive region. But slowly as Leona came out along with Diana, the entire paradigm shifted. It was not just a simple region revolving around combat phase with the support mechanic. No doubt Tariq is pretty good when it's paired with Fiora, which is the very first thing that comes to everyone's mind. Tariq can be played together with Lux, for example. Even Swain. You can play more of a very buffed up champion deck. You can include Unyielding Spirit and then you'll be able to copy it with Tariq. It sounds pretty far-fetched, like something you wouldn't be able to play until the very later stages of the game. But then when we look at the package that is released together with Targon, with a lot of buffing cards, it might seem like a pretty good strategy. You might see during the first week of the release, many players will be experimenting with different decks. And with Targon, like I mentioned, I did mention about the Daybreak, the Nightfall, Celestia and support. There are also a couple of few mechanics and new keywords that were released in Targon altogether. The first one being Spell Shield. I still remember when Bastion was out. Everyone was saying it's going to be a 3 mana deny. But when we slowly look at it, it might be 
as good as deny, but it's limited to the fact that it's only help. It only targets one of your own creature and give it a preemptive kind of barrier. Or you can use it in response to your opponent wanting to destroy it. Whereas deny is more well-rounded, you are able to stop all kinds of plays. Bastion is unable to stop the harrowing. But deny can. But that's the whole point of playing Targon. It's about buffing your minions, buffing your champions. So Bastion really goes in line with the entire spellshow mechanic. And do I think that the spellshow mechanic will change the game overall? I would say yes. Because right now we are playing a very mid-rangey kind of meta. And when the new ladder launches, when the brand new rank season starts, it's going to revert back to aggro being the king of the mountain. It's obviously going to become an aggro and mid-range show all over again. And then during the second week, when the meta solidifies, you start seeing more combo and control deck. And when it comes to combo deck, the first thing that comes to my mind is how powerful Ezreal is with Targon together, which I'll get into later. The very first few days will probably be a bunch of people playing Nightfall together with Daybreak. In fact, those keywords don't really matter much. And let me explain why I think about the Daybreak and Nightfall thing. It just feels very gimmicky, playing first, playing second. Some players might feel that the animation looks amazing. But let me break it down to you. When it comes to Daybreak and Nightfall, it doesn't really matter the order you play it, as most of these cards have distinctive effects, or they only cost a certain amount, like 1, 2, 3, and even 4 and 5. So when you think about it, you're either playing this or you're playing that. And when it comes to Damasa and you compare Daybreak and Nightfall, it's not so much of a difference. Because when it comes to Damasa, especially when you're facing Damasa Harrowing, you saw, you more or less know what your opponent's gonna play. And when they have spell mana, it's so predictable, they only run like 3, three different kinds of spells. The first one being Relentless Pursuit, the next being Ranger's Resolve, and Duel. Maybe there's a chance that they run Concerted Strike. And even, what's that card called? Purify. You more or less can tell what your opponent's gonna do. And when it comes to Damasa, the hand size is incredibly small. So you're not really too worried if your opponent curves out the perfect hand. And you can sort of tell what's the remainder kind of hand if they're holding it to, for it. They're holding on to it for a very long time. So when it comes to Nightfall and Daybreak, when it comes to turn 1, turn 2, turn 3, turn 4, you, when you're playing against it, you can sort of telegraph the kind of plays your opponent gonna have. And then you can mulligan accordingly. Like I mentioned in my previous episode about understanding your win conditions, knowing your power turns, this is very important when it comes to Daybreak and Nightfall. As when you look at the cards right now in Targon, it's very limited. Most of the Daybreak and Nightfall cards, probably for each mana bracket, there's only one or two different variations of it. And highly likely you have access to the decklist as I don't want to bash everyone, but most of the decklists that people use are pretty much a carbon copy of each other. It's not much difference, maybe one, two, or even a three cards difference across the board, across all the decks. Apart from that, you can sort of tell why your opponent's going to play every turn. And if they don't have anything on that turn, let's say it's a three mana turn, and they're unable to draw a Crescent Guardian as response to one of the cards they played earlier to trigger Nightfall, or they just pass in general, it means that they don't really have a play on turn three. Highly likely on turn four, they're going to drop down. I can't, let me think of a turn four, Nightfall, or Daybreak. I don't think there is. I might be wrong. I might have to take a look later. But I still get it, right? The Daybreak and Nightfall mechanic, it sounds pretty good, like you play on the first day. Oh, when it comes to turn 4, there's Leona. But Leona is highly likely not going to be playing aggro. It'll be more of a mid-range kind of Targon slash the deck. So you more or less can tell or telegraph what your opponent's going to play. So you guys get the gist of it. So when it comes to Daybreak, there are certain cards that are incredibly good, 
but then it all still falls on the very predictable kind of package, which can be a good thing, especially when we know that Daybreak sort of lies into the mid-range kind of playstyle, whereas Nightfall usually costs lesser than the Daybreak ones, and they can be seen more of an aggro playstyle. And when we talk about Nightfall and Daybreak, they each have their respective champions which represent them, Leona being for Daybreak, and Diana being for Nightfall. And let me tell you guys, Diana is possibly the strongest champion out of this entire expansion. Kid, I- I'm kidding you not. The ability to have 2-2 challenger as well as quick attack, and the level of condition being incredibly easy to fulfill. Let me tell you guys, Diana in the aggro meta, or in the early stages of this new expansion, is gonna wreck everyone and establish itself as possibly the best champion in Legends of Terra right now. So let me talk about the next one. It's, about, it's called Behold. It was featured in Freylord. Thank goodness Behold is featured in Freylord. Because the original identity of Freylord, to me, it was the Anivia reanimator deck. The deck which revolves around cycling Anivia, summoning multiple copies of it. Hopefully you can reach turn deck as soon as possible, playing War Mother, War Mother's Call, being able to summon multiple creatures, and then closing your opponent out with multiple Anivia on boards. So when, when I see Behold being featured, I was actually extremely happy when I saw it. Because that is the identity that Freylord is supposed to have. It sort of got jumbled in together with the Frostbite mid-range deck, which we see is dominating the meta right now. Which I don't believe is the way Freylord is meant to be played. Freylord was probably intended to be the ultimate late-game kind of deck. Which right now with Behold, is gonna help it achieve it. The champion released along with it was Trundle. And let me tell you something about Trundle. Trundle has possibly one of the best champion designs. It's not outright overpowered. Well, some might say Ice Pillar is extremely overpowered. But Behold... Okay, let me... Oh, if you guys don't know, Behold is basically a mechanic which has a bonus effect if you hone an 8-cost card and above. And Trundle really plays in lead pretty well. You drop Trundle, 5 mana. And this effect is when you play, you're able to add an Ice Pillar into your hand. And Ice Pillar is an 8-mana card that can be played on turn 8. And we look at the package that is released together with Behold. We have Faces of the Old. Is it Faces of the Old Mountain? It's a 2-mana card. I think 2-mana 0-3 or is it 0-4? It has ability which we hold. You get extra mana kister. So when we look at it, you'll be expediting to turn 4 very quickly. And we all know in turn 4, we have Roof Rider along with it. <coughs> and that creates potentially a lot of plays for Freelord. The original intent for Plunder can be seen through this brand new expansion. Because of Warning Shot and Bridgewater, Plunder was sort of abused to be able to activate its effect before the combat phase. Because when we take a look at the word Plunder from the dictionary, it's sort of stealing from your opponent, which means that it sort of leaves your opponent vulnerable. So right now with the brand new expansion, Wolf Rider with Faces of the Old Ones, you're able to reach turn 6 mana very quickly. And you factor in if you play a couple of Catalysts or Ion, you're quickly able to ramp up your deck and hit 10 mana as soon as possible. So with this Behold mechanic, I would say that Freelord will be returning back to its original playstyle of being a ram deck. And this can be seen with the next few cards that were released in the expansion with stuff like Aurelian Soul, which is the Celeste deck. I did see a few people theory crafting, putting together Trundle with Aurelian Soul, which to me looks pretty pretty good on paper. It might, it, not, it might not be super optimal, but we can always give it a try. Because there's also a certain other card that was released in Freelord, 
which will possibly bring it back to the old days of being the RAM deck, and I'll get into it later. And then of course we covered both on Nightfall and Daybreak, Nightfall being the new aggro mechanic, and Daybreak being possibly the brand new mid-range mechanic. And there is Invoke, the very mechanic that everyone is very excited about. The first thing that comes to mind when they saw Invoke is Aurelian Soul, because we see most of them are sort of summoning stuff, it ties in together with dragons, the cards are random, everyone was thinking, oh my, I can just run a deck which runs tons of Invoke, we run Aurelian Soul, and we get to meme the heck out of our opponents. Unfortunately, that's not very true, because the Invoke mechanic is somewhat kind of RNG related. You might not get the ones that you want all the time. There are 22 Celestia cards if I'm not mistaken, because I've been looking through some of the Celestia cards. Some of them are pretty good, but if you're going to rely on chance all the time to win, you're probably not going to do it. Because when we look at Invoke, and then we look at Nap, if you all know about Nap, the, the very first version of Nap, which was about stealing cards from the top of the deck instead of the bottom, it was paired together with Bilgewater. And I did mention in my previous podcast that Bilgewater was the very first region to heavily rely on RNG to win the game. Now with Targon, and Targon being a jack of all trades, having support, having aggro, having some form of mid-range elements, and even Invoke right now, I wouldn't count Invoke as a very combo-ish kind of mechanic. But when I take a look at Invoke and I look at Nap from Beachwater, I would say that I don't really like the direction that Legends Rondara is taking when it comes to creating new regions. For a card game, there has to be a balance of RNG, and Invoke sort of is controlled right now because you most, most likely you will not be able to invoke those very high-cost, game-ending Celestial cards. Because I remember Swim posted a tweet saying that there's a very high chance that when you cast Invoke, the probability of getting a, getting a high-cost Celestial card is lower compared to getting a low-cost Celestial card. Because when we look at Celestial cards overall, most of them are... They already filtered out based on their mana cost. And when we were to Invoke, the chances of getting a lower-cost Celestial card is higher than getting a high-cost one. So I say that is pretty much balanced out. Because can you imagine if you were to reach the later parts of the game? And then you were to cast Invoke non-stop. And, it is, and let's say Invoke is tied into the turn in which you cast it. Meaning that you're able to get game finish, finisher cards after finisher cards. And when we look at the 8 cost and above Celestial cards, most of them are pretty game-breaking. And if at least 3 or 4 of them in hand, and if a Radiant Soul in the late game, you're going to close the game. But some of you might look at this argument and you think about Karma. Karma and Aurelian Soul, they're pretty much a turn timer on the East, right? You reach turn 10, Karma doubles everything you have, Oriden Soul makes all your Celestia cards, cards cost 0, and it feels that it's pretty much GG from there. That's an argument that a lot of people are using, and even I can say as well. So when it comes to Invoke and Celestials, that is a very big discussion, which we will have in a future episode. As of right now, I don't think a lot of people will be using Invoke as much. There will be a lot of people who try it out in tournaments, but as for the latter, you might see here and there, but my prediction is Nightfall and Daybreak will dominate the meta for the first two weeks. Because we all know that aggro decks are easier to form. The game's closer is faster. It's more of a results-oriented deck. And when it comes to tournament, you can be a bit more, I would say, creative in a sense. In fact, everyone is trying to splash Targon in every single region together. It might work, but so far, the only regions that really work together with Targon really well it is Targon Shadow Owls, which is the aggro deck which features Nocturne and Diana. 
And then there might be even Targon and Bilgewater, which is a concept that I was thinking of the past few days, which is the misfortune along with Nocturne, which is sort of a scout. You're able to use Warning Shot to trigger your Nightfall abilities very quickly. It's a very fast-paced kind of Nightfall scouts, which close out the game as soon as possible. I'll share with you guys later, during the later part of this episode. So let's get on to the final mechanic, which is Fury. Fury basically gives your creatures an additional plus one plus one each time it kills a unit. And when we look at Fury, it is tied to a certain kind of unit or even champion. It is tied to the dragons in the game. And somehow Targon just have dragons as well. So when we look at it, they not only have support mechanics, they have Behold, they have Nightfall, Daybreak, Invoke, and lastly they have Fury. So when we look at it, Targon really feels like a... Let me put it in a very nice way. It is meant to be played together with another region to create many different strategies. And that in itself is a good thing, but for the invoke part, it's sort of a more RNG kind of thing. And it's quite true when it comes to Fury because you know when dragons go on onslaught, they get stronger and stronger. So that in itself, pretty fits along together with the whole dragon mechanic. As of right now, I don't think that the Fury thing is that great. I might be wrong because there are some dragons which really fit well into the mid-range kind of playstyle. And I do have some ideas when it comes to that and I'll share with you guys later. So let's talk about patch 1.8. There were certain nerfs to a couple of free lock cards that were extremely popular. The first card that was nerfed is none other than Trifinal Assessor. To be honest, I wasn't expecting this card to be hit that quickly or to be suddenly hit way before the new patch is released. They were most likely looking at the power levels that Astrodrani were in and they sort of, in Riot's point of view, Trifinal Assessor is a win more card. Because right now with the nerf to it, increasing it from 4 to 5 mana, it might seem like a pretty... You know, it's not a huge nerf. It's sort of a preemptive measure kind of nerf. And it sort of takes away Freelord's ability to play as a mid-range deck. Like I mentioned, they wanted to go back to his roots as a ram deck. And I would say it's a pretty good trigger point to make sure that Freelord is played in its original way. As of, for my opinion, I think that this nerf is good as it doesn't really hurt the overall Air Sojourney deck. But that's hard to say because the meta is going to change. Air Sojourney might not even be viable at all. That's hard to say. We'll see probably during the second week whether people will still continue playing Air Sojourney. But I can feel that the hype will all be around Targon. So this turn to Trifarian Assessor at the end of the season we'll start with a new one, especially with a new patch. You'll probably go unnoticed. Most people would probably just not even bother with it at all. As Sojourney will be at the bot bottom of the totem pole. They'll be trying out different Celestial decks that people will be trying out. A Radiant Soul, how Trunder works, some new form of Anivia deck, and definitely tons and tons of aggro decks with Diana and Nightfall. And then the second card that got nerfed is other than Fear of the North, changing from plus 4 plus 4 to plus 3 plus 4. I would say it is a nerf to Sojourney, not so much of the card Fear of the North. I don't recall pe people playing Fear of the North on its own, other than having 3 copies of Jadrani in the deck. So when it comes to this nerf, I think it's quite irrelevant. It's sort of a nerf towards Esodrani as a whole, but like I said, the meta will not be focusing on Esodrani anymore. It's a brand new one, people will be focusing on Targon. So these two nerfs might go slightly unnoticed. In fact, when I was looking at the patch notes, I was surprised to see it. Nobody really bothered much too much about the nerfs to these two cards. As we all know, the new meta is going to come out. It's a brand new expansion. 
these two cards are probably something of the past. Because we know how often the meta changes in Legends of Runeterra. Not to mention, this is a brand new patch, brand new cards. Which means that these two cards will probably go unnoticed. And all the attention will be Celestial and Invoke. From this brand new expansion, I was looking at all the cards that were released together. There were 7 new champions, along with some cards that were not announced because overall they were saying there's gonna be 89 new cards or say 130. So I did look at some other cards before I came up with a list of a couple of cards with potential which will most likely change the entire meta forever. And the very first card that came to my attention was none other than the card that was released together with Leona, and that is none other than Sun Guardian. It is a 6 mana 4 tree with the ability of having Daybreak and Overwhelm which grants it additional plus 4 plus 4 on the turn itself. When we look at Sun Guardian, when it's buffed plus 4 plus 4, it goes into a 8 power 7 mana, 7 health sorry, 6 drop. That card alone outclasses Sejuani. It is more valuable than Darius. In fact, it is able to survive Darius 6 attack and leave it at 1 life. So when I look at Sun Guardian, it looks to me that this is the direction that Daybreak is going to take. Like I mentioned, Daybreak is sort of a mid-rangey kind of playstyle. When played together with Demacia, it looks pretty solid. And Sun Guardian looks like a turn 6 finisher. So when I look at the overall Daybreak package with all the 1-cost one, one card, 2-cost, 3-cost, 4 and 5, it looks like the kind of deck which can close out the game very quickly. And it is almost on the power level as Demacia during the early days of Legends of Runeterra. So when I look at Daybreak and Sun Garden's release, like I mentioned, I could see the direction that Riot is taking with Daybreak. It's gonna be the brand new Demacia. I'm making a rare bow call. The place is gonna be super linear, and when it's turn 6, you know your opponent's gonna drop Sun Guardian. So you're more or less prepared for that. I'm not sure the interaction of Daybreak along with Purify and Hush. Hush, by the way, is the brand new Silence card, which silences a unit. And I did mention in the previous podcast that Purify needs to get hit. Because as of right now, Purify looks like a pretty damn solid card against everything that's being released right now. So I do hope that Riot do address those cards like Purify and Hush. I have no idea why they even released Hush in the first place. The card is incredibly powerful. A lot of people will disagree with me, but I would say that Hush and Purify will define this meta overall. And when we look at the second card, which I identify which has potential, it is none other than Crescent Guardian. It is a 3 mana 3-3. Three, three. And when you have Nightfall, which means that it's split second, you gain plus 2 plus 0. And that's a 3 drop, man. And it's Targon, by the way. Which means that on turn 3, you have a 3 mana 5-3 with Overwhelm. And when we look at Overwhelm, it's the kind of mechanic that sort of goes under the radar. Nobody really bothers about it. However, the damage from Overwhelm, especially on turn 3, is incredibly huge. And we're talking about a 5 damage 3 health minion with Overwhelm on turn 3. We look at other turn 3 minions in the game. None of them have more than 5 life. Even if they do, their attack stat is probably 1 or even 2. Which means that Crescent Guardian is probably going to trade into everything extremely efficiently. And we look at Nightfall, it being Targon. And he has the ability of pairing it together with some Daybreak cards. Which means that Daybreak and Nightfall can be played together. It can be a day and night deck. And that's a very good concept of aggro that I was thinking about together with Shadow Elves. When you look at an aggro deck, it's going to play very efficient, cheap cost minions. We look at Sol- Solari Soldier, we look at Sun Guardian, Crescent Guardian. All these Daybreak and Nightfall cards, they look incredibly strong, right? They cost so little and yet, they are so valuable. There's even one Solari creature which is 2 mana and 3 too. 
and when you have daybreak, it plus four life, and that makes it a two mana three six on turn two. And how ridiculous is that? That sounds super super ridiculous. That's insane, by the way, when we look at it from an aggro standpoint, or even a mid-range one. In fact, that benefits mid-range decks even more, especially if you're able to drop a 2-mana 3-6 blocker. Most of the champions are not able to do more than 6 damage to clear it on the turn that it's dropped. Let's say you're unable to, it goes back to a very simple 2-mana 3-2, which is, which is similar to having a barrier, the barrier minion, which is Bright Steel Protector. It's around the same power level as that, but when we look at the ability to get 4 life on turn 2, that's pretty strong. And we look at Crescent Guardian, 3 mana ability to get overwhelmed, plus 2, so we got a 3 mana 5 tree. It is way stronger than Basilisk Rider. Even Basilisk Rider got hit probably 2 weeks after it got buffed. So when it comes to Crescent Guardian, I think it's probably going to get nerfed. It's going to become a 3 mana 2 2 eventually, and then it's going to get plus 2 plus 0. No doubt people will still play it, but this Crescent Guardian card itself makes Nightfall aggro look incredibly strong. And we look at the overall cost of all the cards in Nightfall, it is damn cheap. There's a burst spell which makes your Nightfall minion cost one less. If you're not wrong, it's Dust, Battle, something. It can be generated from that one mana Nightfall card. And when I look at Crescent Guardian, it really reminds me of things I really dislike about having cheap cost minions in aggro decks. No doubt aggro decks are just a bunch of cards which cost cheap and very efficient in value, but this Crescent Guardian is taking it to a whole new level. I expect this card to be nerfed really, really soon after its release. In fact, this card is probably going to define the first two weeks. That's my call. And the third one, this is pretty no-brainer. This is other than Bastion, which is give an ally spell shield. The best part about Bastion is that it's 3 mana, meaning that if you were to run a mid-range deck, you're most likely going to have 3 mana anyway. And it's a burst spell speed, meaning that you're able to protect your minions and feed into the mid-range strategy pretty easily. Also, when you look at mid-range, you're trying to flood the board, summoning multiple creatures. Maybe your spells you're running very li very little copies. Maybe there's a chance that you might want to cast Leona's champion spell if you really have Leona on board. And then you maybe play two copies of Bastion, a couple of other Targon spells. Bastion will definitely be an auto-include in all Targon decks. So do expect to see this card to be played all the time. However, when we look at Overall, first two weeks, like I mentioned, is going to be aggro and mid-range. Bastion might be cut because you won't see a lot of removal anyways. Oh, and Bastion is extremely brutal against Vengeance though. Yeah, so that's one thing that people have to take a lot of. In fact, you might see people totally cutting removal at all. In fact, the brand new Ezreal deck that people might play might not even run any removal because everything will be targeting to your face. And there are so many different kinds of burst spells that you have, from invoking to gems. Ezreal is going to dominate the meta. It'll be a sleeper within the first two weeks and then everyone will realize how powerful Ezreal is. So let's go to the fourth card, which is another Sunburst, which is the 6 mana, deal 6 to a unit. If it's Daybreak, it silences and deal 6 instead. This really fits into the entire Daybreak kind of mechanic. It's not too strong, it's 6 mana slow. But however, if Daybreak, you silence it and deal 6, which means that if you best in it and you silence it, you automatically destroy it. So it's, it's that your Bastion doesn't save a creature from it, but Deny does though. And yeah, Silence is pretty damn good though. Yeah, so this Sunburst card really fits into it. The Daybreak, like I mentioned earlier. I mentioned just now, sorry. I do expect it to be played in every mid-range deck, but then for aggro, probably not. It's too, it's too costly to run it. I don't see any other deck that we should run this Sunburst card other than, like I mentioned earlier, a variation of Lux with Tariq. I can see Sunburst being played at 3 copies in their deck. 
But this card definitely has potential to be game-breaking because it bypasses Unyielding Spirit and a lot of cards which give your minions additional life such as Radiant Strike if people play it, even Barrier it goes through that. So this Sumbers card is really an answer to most of the champions in the game. Even Trindamir, even Anivia. And Silence Mechanic, like I said just now, Harsh and Purify is too strong. Something needs to be done about it. So let's go to the next card. The fifth card, Spacey Sketcher. I don't really want to include all the Celestial cards, but I'll just pick the one which costs the cheapest, which is Spacey Sketcher. So 1 mana 1-1, one, one. discard a card to invoke a Celestial card that costs 3 or less. When we look at it, it's a pretty value card. You're discarding one to invoke a cheap cost Celestial card. Some Celestial cards vary from having Elusive. There's one Celestial Doggy. It's very cute. When you summon it, you draw one card. I think that is the strongest Celestial card which costs 3 or less. There are a couple of them which cost 0 mana. When you look at Species Catcher, it's not the ability to get additional resources. Well, that's part of it. But when you look at Species Catcher, it gives you more alternatives during an early game. There are some cards which are game-breaking, such as the Elusive 3 cost minion, and the one that I mentioned earlier, which is the 2-mana dog, which draws you a card. There are a couple of Celestial cards which cost 0 mana. I can't recall most of them, but I still get the gist of it. It's the ability to give you additional outs during the early game, which may more or less grant you the ability to store out the game even more. Because Spacey Sketchy is forced in line with the Invoke mechanic. And we look at Invoke as a whole, it's not a, it's not a very aggressive kind of playstyle. Well, it can be from turn 4, turn 5 onwards. But other than that, having more alternatives and options during the early game really helps out the Invoke mechanic. And I can see Spacey Sketcher being included in some mid-range decks. Even in the brand new Ezreal deck, they'll be coming out together with it. When we look at all the cards in the whole, I think Ezreal really benefits from Targon the most. Some people might say not really because everyone's looking at Nightfall as aggro. So let's let's just go through the phase and we get back to it. And let's look at the sixth card, which none other than Fey Guide. Fey Guide belongs to Ionia. It's released together with Lulu, which is the brand new champion for the Ionia package. When we look at Lulu, it feels like a very supportive kind of mechanic. Well, it is supportive because you support minion, it grows in size, which fits its Legends of Runeterra counterpart of the ability of wild growth, making your champion look incredibly big and strong, giving additional buffs. We look at Fey Guide, it has the ability to grant an ally elusive, the elusive mechanic just on drop, it's a 4 mana 3-3. Three, three. And we look at certain decks that can benefit from it. The first thing that came to mind when I saw Fey Guide was none other than Trindamir. But nobody will definitely pair Irina and Freylock together right now. When you look at Fey Guide, it can even be paired together with Zed. Because I did see a deck list that one of my friends on Legends of Rundera, he created. If I'm not wrong, he made sort of a support elusive deck, which runs a couple of Fey Guides, some Lulu, some Zed. It functions very similarly to the elusive mid-range deck during the beta and during the season 1. Fey Guide really brings you the next level. And the combo that I can think of when it comes to Fey Guide is with Horns of the Dragon. I look at Fega as an enabler. Right now, it might not be super strong and people might pass on it thinking that it's not that great. Fega is bad. But you know what? Give it 3 or three weeks or even a month. Maybe during Call of the Mountain 2 and people will start to see that Fega really packs a punch and is pretty solid. So let's get on to the 7th card. And this time around, it's the champion. All you guys can predict it already. It's not other than Diana itself. 2 mana 2-2. Two, two. Quick attack. Nightfall, Gain Challenger. 
Having the access to a challenger unit on turn 2 and with the ability of quick attack means that you're more you're guaranteed to destroy your opponent's minion on turn 2, which gives you an over very huge advantage when it comes to the early game. And when we look at Targon and Nightfall mechanic, it really falls in line together with the aggro and kind of flooding kind of playstyle, closing out the game as soon as possible. And the level up condition for Diana can be reached extremely easy as well. All this gonna do is reach Nightfall 4 times and you level up and it becomes a 2 mana 3 3. And during Nightfall, it's an additional plus 2 plus 0, meaning that it has a 5 attack on turn 3 and even turn 4, which is the earliest the ability to Nightfall at least 4 times. Yeah, that would probably be turn 4. And there's not a lot of creatures which has 5 life which can tank Diana's or even 6 life to be able to tank Diana's quick attack and challenger. And we look at the cards in Nightfall, the ability to challenge a unit, and with the overall other packages, such as the, what's that, Sightness, the Moonstalker, the ability to give elusive, holy, holy crap man, that's gonna be 10 damage on turn 6 elusive. The overall outlook of the Nightfall thing really relies on Diana's strength. Do I think that Diana will be nerfed after its release? That's hard to say though, but I can see it being nerfed to Three ma to two mana two one. I'm really talking about nerves right now because I can see that Diana is gonna change the meta, or is gonna define the meta during the first two weeks. Everyone might call me nuts or even crazy, but Diana Nightfall is gonna dominate it. I don't know how many times I repeat it in this podcast, but it's definitely gonna happen. And the eight card is not other than Fuse Firebrand. The very first dragon that I feature. It's gonna fit into a very mid-range deck. It's a 5 mana 5-5 dragon with spell shield. And it also has fury, which means that on the turn that it's summoned, if your opponent doesn't deal with it, it's gonna grow into a 6-6. And as a 6-6 dragon on turn 5, it really trades well into every other champion past turn 6. You can even go 1 for 1, 1 for 2, even 1 for 3. When you drop it, it's really a spell shoot intact, which means that it's able to block the first spell. And the first thing that damages it from the, from any spell kind of thing, shenanigans that you want to do on Fuse Firebrand, is something that might see potential play in some decks in the near future, but not right now. So do keep a lookout for Fuse Firebrand. And let's go to the 9 card. And the final card, which I think has potential. We should probably make... You know what? Ezreal Karma might be somewhat viable during the next expansion or during Call of the Mountain. I would say that Singular Will can be pretty game-breaking because Iona is incredibly slept on right now. Everyone is thinking of Targon. You have the ability to select an ally and recall all other units. It's a 10 mana slow by the way. And you pair it together with Karma, it means that you're buying Karma one additional turn because your opponent will not be able to redevelop the board after that. They're talking about late game. Most of the minions of your opponent was probably cost 6 mana, 7 mana, which means that they can't they can't reflect the board with those high cost minions. And if they're playing aggro, they're most likely gonna lose because Karma's on board already. So when I look at Singular Wheel and the fact that it exists, and maybe Ezreal Karma might still be playable, who knows? Singular Wheel might on its own make Ezreal Karma viable during Call of the Mountain. And the funny thing about Singular Wheel is that I never thought that Riot would ever make this card because we all saw how powerful Vanish was during 
the what's the, the quest rope during Hearthstone, the ability to bounce everything back into hand. And when I saw Singular Wheel being released, it might it feels like a mistake though. That's hard to say. I do see people sleeping on it, but in my opinion, Singular Wheel is probably a huge mistake. In fact, when I look at the overall Call of Mountain package, there are a couple of mistakes that they really made. The first being creating silence, and the next one is none other than Singular Wheel. I'm sorry this card might not be super strong now, but it will be a huge issue in the future. And you guys can definitely come back to this podcast and listen to me say it again. It's a mistake. Singular wheel along with silence. Skeptics might think that I'm mad, but you have to agree with me on this. Singular wheel is 100% hands down a mistake that shouldn't have happened. There are also some cards which have some potential. Some things that I can think of is Mountain Scryer. But then when it comes to Mountain Scryer, you have to play a Fugon, Targon, Celestial deck though in order to make it work. Because it has allegiance. And we already know how weak the invoke mechanic when it's played on its own is. Or you play a Mono Targon. It might not be super strong. But I can see it working. We have to see how how good your luck is when it comes to generating those 7 plus Celestial cards. That might be that might be something that people might run in the future. But as of right now, Mountain, Mountain Scryer looks like it has somewhat potential but not anytime soon. Let's go through the aggro phase and the mid-range phase and we'll get back to it. And then another card which might make the Masia, and even the, the Daybreak the Masia that look, look kind of strong is for the Fallen. It's a pretty good response card to your opponent clearing a board with Ruination though. Other than that, the 8 mana card might be a bit too costly. I don't think there's a lot of elites that you run in the deck though. It might go down to at least 6 mana. But other than that, it feels kind of meh. That's why I list it as maybe some of potential. And now let's talk about some thoughts and predictions that I have when it comes to Call of the Mountain. Some strategies that players might run. And this might be super exciting for you. You might be waiting the entire episode to hear me talk about this. There are some decks that I thought of during the during August when the first few releases of Call of the Mountain came out. I was diligently being updated with all the new cards. I did see and I did some thinking how the deck's gonna work. And I can't wait to share with you. So let me take a quick sip of water before I get back to it. So we all know that the orders of the champions they were released. As for Tariq, which was the first one released, I didn't really have much of a concept for it. Because the very first thing that came to my mind, like I mentioned, was Fiora and Tariq being played together. Apart from that, I don't see Tariq being super represented. So when it comes to Trundle, that really got me thinking. The first thing that came to mind when I saw Trundle was the revival of a Ram deck. In fact, the very first deck that I thought of was a kind of a Shadow Owl slash Freelock version. You include Trundle, you play Trindamir, and you run the Harrowing as sort of a finisher. Some cards that consist or is being run the deck can consist of Omen Hawk, Faces of the Old Ones, which is the brand new Ram card, the 2 mana 0 4, or is it a 0 3, which is ability to give you a plus 1 mana when you are holding an 8 cost card and above, which is True Behold. And then you run some Catalyst or Ion, Triple Trunder, Brockback Protector, which is also a brand new minion. It's a 4 mana 2-7. You take 3 damage to heal 3 every turn. Which when you put together in a Ram deck, together with Shadow Owls Freelord, with some healing package, together with Ram, it looks pretty strong. Because with Trunder each time you attack, you gain additional attack. And when you level up, it has the ability to do overwhelm damage 
And when you pair it together with Trindamil, you're being able to reach the late game pretty quickly. And together with Harrowing, you're able to deal piercing damage. When we look historically, a lot of decks are not able to deal with overwhelm damage. So when I think about Trindamir, no, when I think about Trundle, it really pairs well together with Trindamir as a ram kind of overwhelm late game deck with Harrowing. Another thing that comes to mind is maybe the resurgence of Anivia again. Because Revitalizing Raw already makes a difference in the deck. Because Revitalizing Raw is a 7 mana slow spell. If you have 10 mana, it makes your the card that you target with Revitalizing Raw zero cost. Revitalizing Raw is a 7 mana card which heals you based on the cost of the card that you reveal. And let's say you were to reveal maybe a war mana, which is 12 mana, you can heal back 12. And then you'll make it go down to 0 mana, meaning that you're going to cast a 0 mana war mana's call. Then it looks pretty far-fetched though, when it comes to Anivia, because there's a Radiant Soul now, and the whole concept of a late-game champion might totally change, as people might instead play a Radiant Soul instead of Anivia. So we'll take a look at that. And then the second deck that I can also think of is, like I mentioned during the early part of the podcast, it is the Plunder Overwhelm deck. It consists of Free Lord and Bilge Water whole deck revolves around ramping up your mana as soon as possible. That can be done through Faces of the Old One, Wolf Rider, and everyone's favorite zero mana burst spell, Warning Shot. Because Warning Shot gives you the ability to activate Plunder without going to the combat phase. And we all know going to turn 4, you most likely are not able to do damage because you really have Faces of the Old One. Let's say you have an optimal opening hand, and then you play Warning Shot on turn 4 and you drop Wolf Rider, which means that you're going to start with 6 mana on the next turn. The champions that I feature for this Plunder Overwhelm deck is none other than Gangplank together with Trundle. Because we all know how powerful Trundle is in the late game, along with Gangplank. And then of course we're going to play triple copies of the Dreadway, which gives you the ability to double all your damage. So when we think about it, Gangplank the ability to do the Powder Explosion, or the Powderful Explosion when it's leveled up, along with, Gang- with Trundle's ability to keep gaining additional damage and deal Overwhelm with the Dreadway on board gives it a very strong ram plunder kind of feel ram plunder overwhelm kind of feel which is the deck's theme and it's something that i was thinking of when i first saw trunder for the first time do try it out and take a do try it out and let me know though the whole concept of the deck revolves around having dreadway gangplank trundle and wolf rider to enable you to reach turn six turn eight as soon as possible and start doing huge tons of damage through the early mana the truly through the early ramp of mana and those plunder plunder and overwhelm mechanic. And the third card or the third concept that I was thinking of was none other than the Ezreal deck that I've been mentioning so many times in this episode. It revolves around playing PNZ and Targon. How the deck works is to use those cheap one cost minions such as Gift Giver, Spacey Sketcher, to quickly get those token invoke cards into your hands token celestial cards and gems in your hand and then the finisher is probably going to use shots of the mountain along with a leveled up Ezreal to hit maximum damage to your opponent As- however there's one thing that comes to mind when I think about this Ezreal Targon deck it is the ability to level up Ezreal because if you're just going to rely on PNZ alone it's very hard to level it up unless you are going to keep resolving your triple static shift all the time, which is highly unlikely. We might see it work though, because I can think of Shards of the Mountain and Ezreal being paired together 
extremely well. However, it might not be super viable because leveling up Ezreal is incredibly hard when you play it together with Targon because you're just going to rely on multiple copies of your PNZ cards to hit your level up condition which can be incredibly hard to hit in this version of Ezreal and Targon. Some people might say that Ezreal is more suited for Ezreal Karma and Ezreal Twister Fate because they have ways to level up through Karma's double targeting and even in Ezreal Twister Fate you have the ability to have redirects to hit multiple minions to level up or to gain charges as soon as possible to hit the level up condition. So when it comes to Ezreal Targon, the concept that I have is it can be strong but leveling up is going to be a problem because Shards of the Mountain and Ezreal looks, pre looks pretty good on paper. But if you were to hit the level condition, it is incredibly hard. So let's move on to the fourth deck, which is the one that I did mention in the podcast as well, which is not other than the Nightfall Scouts deck, the Targon Bridgewater. There's some version of the decks that I've seen online, but most of them usually revolve around the same strategy, which is having Warning Shot, having Lunari Dustbringer, and Lunari Shade Stalker to enable you to have a very early bot, a very overwhelmingly powerful bot during the early stages of the game. Because when we look at Lunari Shade Stalker, it gives me the vibes of Shadow Assassin, the 3 mana 2-2. Two two. And when we look at Lunari Shade Stalker, it's a 2 mana 2-3 with the ability of Nightfall and gaining Elusive. Does it seem too strong? That's hard to say though, because it doesn't give you a plus 1. But the ability to have a 2 mana 2-3 two mana two on a turn 2 with Elusive, hmm, that might be an overall issue as well. And that's the reason why I did say that Nightfall might will become the new aggro is because you look at the cards, they are very cheap costs. They have Crescent Guardian, which is the biggest problematic card that I can identify right now. It might be too strong. There will be a nerf, 100%. Patch 1.9 will probably come two weeks from now. I won't be surprised. This Nightfall Scouts deck is going to dominate the meta, definitely. And if you want to reach Master as soon as possible, I guess... It is within your best interest or in your best interest to run this deck. Scout mechanic double attack along with Nightfall's cheap aggro kind of shenanigans with Diana Misfortune. It is pretty hard not to reach Master very quickly with this version. Another version of the deck that I did think of which is very similar to the Nightfall Scouts is none other than the Daybreak Nightfall aggro. Instead of running Bilgewater, you're going to include Shadow Owls together with Targon. When we look at it, it's a very classic aggro deck uses Nightfall to close the game, the enablers are none other than Diana and Nocturne. No doubt you're playing Daybreak, but you're running the best cards of Daybreak, which is none other than Solari Soldier, Solari Shield Bearer, Solari Priestess, Ravun Daylight Spear. So you're playing the best of both worlds, you're including Nightfall cards which are very good during the early game, and certain Daybreak cards which have the ability to dominate the turn on its own during the early game. And of course, you're going to include Stygian Onlooker, Lunari Dustbringer, Lunari Shadestalker, Crescent Guardian. And the finishers are none other going to be the enablers, which are Diana, Nocturne, together with Sickness, the Moonstalker. That was the name in which I forgot just now. It is the 6 mana 4-2 Nightfall, which gives itself and another unit or champion the ability to gain Elusive. So when we look at turn 6, together with Nocturne's ability to reduce attack of everything on the opposing, opposing side, and then you have Fearsome, all you gotta do is make another minion of yours turn into Elusive, and the rest of it with the Fearsome mechanic is easily 
I can easily say 17-20 damage on turn 6 alone. And that's the very big reason why Shadow Owl's Stargon, the Daybreak Nightfall aggro deck, is going to dominate the meta. It's either you're going to play Shadow Owl's Stargon or you're going to run Targon Butchwater. Both versions are very similar kind of playstyle. One goes through scouts and the other is the classic aggro deck. Aggro truly didn't disappear guys. We also remember the very annoying early days of PNZ and Noxious, the Champless Burn. Now we are evolving into it with Shadow Owl's Targon. And the best part about Targon is that it can play aggro, it can play mid-range, it can even play combo and it can even play control. It's really a jack-of-all-trades region though. It's a good thing, but the big problem is the Celestial thing, which I still refuse to acknowledge it because the Celestial thing is really, really quite RNG though. That's another argument on another day. Let's get back to another deck. It's not other than the mid-range deck that I've always been talking about that can be played together in Daybreak. It might be the new phase of Frostbite. I can see it being sort of a Daybreak Frostbite mid-range deck. You're putting together Targon and Freylord. The key cards are going to be, of course, the very strong Daybreak minions, Solari Soldier, Solari Shieldbreaker, Solari Priestess, Ravun Daylight Spear, and of course the 6 mana card, Sun Guardian. The champions that they will be in the deck will probably be Leona and Sedrani, because Sedrani has Fury of the North. And then Leona will be able to have the champion spell which buffs everything on board and gives it Daylight again. They're going to run a couple of very classic mid-range spells such as Sunburst, Morning Light, and Bastion to keep your, your minions strong and to remove opposing threat when needed. When you look at it, it's going to be a very classic kind of playstyle. You're going to drop value minions, have very good traits, hoping you can close out the game. As for the counters, it's probably the only few decks that can counter is probably going to be aggro. Because when you talk about mid-range decks, you don't really, you're trying to get efficient traits, but there are not a lot of challenger in Daybreak Frostbite though. But then this overall countered by the fact that Leona is able to stun anything during Daybreak. And Sojuani can even turn minions to have zero attack and then have vulnerable to clear anything that you deem as will be threatening to your board. And when we look at Leona and Sojuani, you're running both stun and Frostbite at the same time. And I think this Daybreak Frostbite might actually be pretty game-breaking. It was something that I was thinking about when I saw the release of Leona because Sojuani... Stun and Frost together looks pretty strong, right? You can even add in some copies of Brittle Steel, Elixir of Iron, even Harsh Winds to give it more of a very strong mid-range kind of vibe. It's even going to be the brand new Esodrani. Heck, you can even throw in Trifarian Assessor and see how it goes. So do, do, do try out this deck. I think it has potential. Daybreak Frost by mid-range. All you got to do is add in the best Daybreak cards, put in Triple Leona and Triple Sodrani, and you're good to go. And another deck that came to mind is the... Because of Fae Guide, that's what I think of this card. It's none other than the Lulu Lissin deck. You're going to run Fae Guide, Horns of the Dragon, to turn it elusive for double attack. It might seem pretty far-fetched and over-the-top though because you're relying on so many different combinations and so many different cards in your deck to win the game. When we look at Ionia together with... Because it can be just Ionia Noxious or maybe Ionia with Targon. You don't really have a lot of draw though, and drawing to your combo pieces is incredibly hard. Because we look at Ezreal Karma itself, no doubt that deck has a little bit of draw, but you're sort of reliant on drawing Ezreal and Karma after you level it up and you still have to draw it. And you look at combo decks, unless you're opening in your opening hand or you mulligan hard for it, 
knowing in some matchups that you're able to resolve the combo every single game. But when you're playing against mid-range, you're playing against aggro, there's no way you're going to keep Ezreal and you're going to keep Karma in your hand, right? Because it's near impossible for you to even drop them, let alone survive a turn after that. So when we look at Ionia, the very first, even you're going to play it with Lulu and Lee Sin, it might seem pretty hard though. So it might be something that people will play in the future. Maybe after they reach Master Rank, they'll try it around. But all bets are off when it comes to Lulu Lee Sin. I don't think a lot of players will be playing around Fae Guide and Horns of the Dragon. Yeah, so that's what I think about. And these are some of the deck concepts that I did think about. Notice I did mention about Tarik and Fiora. But I'm not going to go in depth. Maybe a bit later. Because right now, we're going to look through some decks that I've been scouting out from decks of Runeterra. With me right now, I have a couple of decks which I looked at decks of Runeterra. They look pretty interesting though. I'm sorry if I don't reference or shout out to any of you guys who made the deck. Because I, I only saved the cards that were in the deck. Not so much of who made the deck. So the very first deck, the IDC that kind of picked interest to me is sort of a stun kind of deck. It is a Targon slash Noxious. Of course, when it comes to stun, there are certain cards that come to your mind, such as Swain and Leona. So this deck runs the similar package of triple, copy, triple copies of Solari Soldier, Shield Bearer, Priestess, Daylight Spear, Levine, Arachnid, Sentry, the Leviathan. Some spells that they have are none other than Ravenous Flock, Guiding Touch, Bastion, Death's Hand, Noxious Fervor, Noxious Guillotine, and Sumbers. So when you look at it, it's going to be a pretty standard deck which relies or not. It revolves around the very strong Daybreak mechanic. And then you run Swain and Arachnid Sentry to hit stun. And it also pairs very well together with Leona because Leona is able to stun opposing minions. And then you run triple copies of Ravenous Flock. Meaning that Leona stun together with Ravenous Flock is more or less going to clear anything that's on the opposing board. And then you add in Swain as well. When I think about Swain, is it very hard to it's pretty hard to gain the level advantage though if you were to run a deck like that. Because you're only gonna have Ravenous Flock, Death's Hand, and Noxious Fervor to hit your out of damage condition to level up Swain. It might be good though because double sunburst, 6 damage, you cast it twice, it's just gonna hit 12 damage and Swain will be level up from that. So I can see this deck being played, it's a pretty good deck overall, the concept of it. I do like it a lot. But we all know that aggro is gonna become the front, the forefront of it. It might be a strong tournament deck, but if you're gonna give up Targon to run a very stun-centric deck, hmm, it might be something that might not see or might not be happening too much though. But it's a good deck. I, I really like it. The next deck is something that really excited me. When I saw it, it was Trunder and Aesol. I didn't think of it that much because when I first thought of Aesol, the first thought that comes to my mind was it's going to revolve heavily around Invoke Celestials being super inconsistent. And you really have to reach the late game in order for it to be sort of useful because Aesol is 10 mana. And let's be honest, a lot of games don't, reach it, don't really hit 10 mana before the game's over. Most of the games are over by the time the Harrowing is cast, maybe even on turn 6, turn 7. And when I see the Trunder Aesol deck, there's pretty lots of cuts in there that really makes it able to reach turn 10. Pretty, pretty easily. Let me show you what the deck, or maybe let's just say it out what the cards in it. For the champions, it's going to be triple Trunder, three copies of Aesol, three copies of Omenhawk for the creature side followers, sorry, three Solari Soldiers, three, three copies of Everson Sentry, two copies of Shield Bearer, Priestess, 
3 copies of Wording Stone, of course for the ability to ramp up, it's gonna be brought back Protector. The 4 mana 2 7 which gives it the ability to heal. Then we throw Ravager, throw Ravager. it's gonna be a 4 mana 3 5. And if you behold, it gains the ability to have regeneration. And for the spells, it has Gilding Touch, Harsh, very OP silence card, Catalyst of Aeons, Star Shaping, the ability to invoke a 7 cost and above. Celestial card, pretty strong, Harsh Winds, and even 2 copies of Revitalizing Raw. The only way this deck works is through Revitalizing Raw, and then you reveal a soul, and during turn 10, you get a heal 10 and drop a soul, which puts you back into a very commanding position. But in order to reach turn 10, it's gonna be a huge question though, because as you see, the, the highest cost minion in the deck is 4 or even 5. We don't call Trunder a minion, we call it a champion. Because it's gonna be a very long time from turn 4 to turn 10 though, you do have Catalyst or Ion to buy turns and Wording Stone. But when we know when you're gonna face a ram deck, the priority is always to clear the Wording Stone and even the faces of the old one. Or is it. Yeah, I did butcher the name multiple times, but I sort of get it. Do I think this deck can be viable? I think the overall concept is great. I really do like this overall running bunch of cheap minions as sort of like chum blockers or the ability to store the game and then you're gonna drop a soul. Because a soul on its own, you don't really need to run multiple invoke and celestia, which was something which I failed to realize. All you gotta do is run maybe just a soul, star shaping and Solari Priestess, and you're good to go, you don't have to run everything revolving around Celestial. Which I believe is something that I think most of you guys, if you guys want to run Celestial though, you only need to revolve around 3 cards. It's not other than Star Shaping, Solari Priestess, and Aesol. Maybe you can put in the, what's that one mana card, let me take a look again. Maybe you can run the, sorry, give me one moment, I'm taking a look at my list again. You can run 3 coins of Spacey Sketcher. So when I think about it, if you guys were to run a soul or like Celestial decks, the core of it is going to be 3 copies of Spacey Sketcher, 3 copies of a soul, obviously, because it's the, it is the Celestial overall strategy, 3 copies of Solari Priestess, and 3 copies of Star Shipping. Apart from that, you can run anything that you want already. That's the overall backbone of the deck. So this concept of Trunder and a soul, I give it a 5 out of 5. It is pretty solid. And I think that most players would derive from it and make better versions of it. I wouldn't call it better, improved versions of it. So whoever made this deck, thank you very much. It sort of gave me a very good idea of how ASO is meant to be played. I do really like, I like the concept of it. And this third deck is created none other than my friend Zero Infinity. Shout out to you. Because I remember when it comes to decks, you're one of the first few to, you're the, one of the first few players to make pretty game-breaking tier 1 master decks. Because if you guys don't know, Zero Infinity often hits rank 1 Southeast Asia Master on the LOR server very, very, very quickly. He's one of the first few players to even hit Masters every season. So when I saw this elusive deck, it might be extremely played because when you look at it, let me read out the deck list. Triple copies of Lulu, triple copies of Zed, three copies of Gift Giver, Navori Blade Scout, three copies of Green Glade Duo, Shade Stalker, Conspirator, Mentor of the Stones, if you guys don't know what Mentor of the Stone is, it is a 3 mana 1-1. One, one. If you support a minion, it gives it plus 2 plus 2. And when it gets destroyed, you get to add 3 copies of gem into your hand. And then there's 3 copies of Fae Guide. Oh, finally, and a practical use of Fae Guide. 3 copies of Kinko Lifeblade. 3 copies of Windfarer Hatchling. For the spells, it's going to be Pale Cascade, Bastion, and Wheel of Ionia. Bastion really fits in the theme of this deck though. Because once you have Bastion, you don't really need to play Twin Disciples anymore. 
Because twin disciples can be good, but you're most likely going to play it defensively to give the plus 3 health, to give it some sort of advantage. So when I see this deck, it's going to function very similarly to the mid-range, the elusive mid-range deck that tore through the ladder during the early stages of Legends of Runeterra. So this deck together with Lulu and Zed, with the ability to use Fey Guide to buff your Zed to become elusive, you're almost always going to level up Zed all the time though. So I would say this deck, I'll rate it 5 out of 5 as well. I can see it being played during the early stage of the of the ladder. Because Lunari Shade Stoker though, that's a very big game changer. I did mention it a couple of times. Hmm. But of course, the the spotlight is going to fall on the Nightfall Aggro. This deck along with it, because Elusives is also part of Aggro, and Aggro will always dominate the meta during the early stages. And lastly, this deck is sort of the... I guess it will be played a lot as well. Especially when Tariq was released, the first thing that came to mind was Fiora Tariq. This is a very simple or good deck list that I've seen, which is the first of a support Fiora deck. Of course, it runs 3 copies of Fiora, 3 copies of Tariq, 3 Flat Feather Tracker, 3 Gift Giver, 3 Tiari the Traveler, 3 Warshafts, 3 Mentor of the Stones, 3 Mountain Sojourners. For the spell side, there will be 3 copies of Simple Combat, 2 copies of Bastion, 1 Hush, Overpowered Card, 3 copies of Relentless Pursuit, 3 copies of Repose, 2 copies of Blessing of Targon, 2 copies of Concerted Strike. So when you look at this deck list, it's pretty clear card though. It's going to be a supportive buff deck. Tyrek copies everything is played onto Fiora. And I honestly think that this deck will dominate. Will be the will be the answer to the aggro meta. Because when you look at it, it runs multiple copies of buffs, meaning that your Fiora can take damage, but you more or less revert back to its 3-3 stat eventually because of the, the buffs. If you take damage, you'll go back to its the damage you take will be dealt to the buffs. And then you have Bastion, which makes it immune to spells, you have Hush to silence. Relentless Pursuit, when your opponent thinks that their turn is over, you cast it and then you can get additional Fiora level condition by hitting one more minion when you least expect it. You have Repose to block damage, and then you have Blessing of Targon to buff Fiora, or even buff Tarik, and then you can pass over the buff with Tarik onto Fiora. Concerted Strike to do that hidden damage. Mountain Sojourners though, I thought this card was pretty... It's strong, but I don't see any practical application of it because it's 5 mana. And I didn't really have a very good impression of a support deck. So this Fiora Tariq, we also see play. Yeah, you'll definitely see play because of the aggro meta. Everything revolves around bot. And when it comes to bot, Fiora is always smiling because there's things for it to destroy and level up. Because I still remember back in the meta where it revolves around like sea monsters, Azero Kama, Fiora sort of faded off. That's the reason why the Master wasn't played as much. Because when the meta shifts towards a more control kind of playstyle, Fiora really sees little to no play because it can be easily destroyed and not so menacing as well, at all. So when I look at all these concepts that I see on decks of Runeterra and some concepts that I came up with, I would let me just talk about five decks which I think will probably dominate it. The first one will definitely 100% will be the Nightfall Scouts, the one that revolves around warning shot scouts and Nightfall minions to close the game as soon as possible. The next one is also another variation of Nightfall, which is the Daybreak Nightfall Aggro, which revolves around Shadow Owls, Targon, Nocturne, Diana, the ability to have Fearsome, Reduce Attack, and then have Sightness Moonstalker to give it elusive to deal hidden OTKs out of nowhere. Another deck that I see is going to be played a lot is none other than the, some version of 
a Raiden Soul because we know people are going to be curious and run that deck. There's going to be... Okay, Elusis will definitely be played. The one that I did mention, Zero Infinity created. That list will be played a lot. And lastly, it will be Tariq Fiora. So these are five decks I identified. It will be aggro, mid-range, combo not so much. Combo might be... No, I don't think ASO counts as combo. So I think the meta will definitely be revolving around 3, three combo. No, I mean 3 aggro, 1 mid-range, and 1 control deck. There will be no room for combo during this early part of the season. But you definitely see maybe 2 or 3 weeks in. Maybe some player will find a way to optimize Ezreal and Targon together. Because I really do want to bet on Ezreal and Shards of the Mountain. The interaction is really damn strong. And oh my, that was a long one. We have come to the end of today's episode. I talked about Duos of Runeterra, the new patch 1.8, called the Mountain, Targon, and we did some theory crafting. Do let me know a certain decks that you think will see potential play. Because I do know when the time this episode is released, it's probably going to be Monday for you guys in a different time zone. No, it'll be Monday for me, it'll be Sunday for you guys. You probably, this episode will be a little bit old and the decks that are theory crafted have already been played on the meta, but never mind, it's okay. At least you guys can hear it in advance before, or maybe I'm really predicting the future before it even happens. Yeah, thank you for listening and don't forget to share this episode with your friends and share it on your social media pages if you enjoyed it. It'll help me grow this podcast. Right now, it's being grown at a very good pace. I'm hitting the stats that I really want to. So thank you all for listening and for subscribing to my content, listening to it every week. Do follow me on Spotify. Subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts if you're an Apple iOS user. And don't forget to leave me a 5-star review as you help me out a lot. You can also contact me via Twitter, Discord, and even email. All the links that I mentioned are in the description box below. Thank you and I'll see you next week. And that's game.